1: Well, this week, actually, uh, I saw a panel of young adults, uh, young adults being in their 20s and 30s, and, and they were talking about their lives and what it's been like the last several years. And honestly, uh, there was a bleakness to their lives which um, they themselves kind of recognized. They discussed how uh, COVID, how the lockdown, how uh, the, the everything associated with that uh, had af- affected the, what they would normally expect to have experienced in their life in this time of their of their existence. They also talked about the the current uh, political environment, the economic environment, how all of these things together was affecting them, and uh, it was clear that they were being affected with their mental health, their their outlook on light, their life, their perspective. They were worried about. The, the, their careers and the opportunities before them, and there was just overall a, a bleakness to the, to the conversation and so they gave examples of how they were attempting to cope with this this outlook uh, the, the events that they were participating in the the relationships that they were trying to form, the different parties and venues that they would go to in order to have fun and uh, taking trips, or and for some of them, even the frank discussion about uh, uh, alcohol and and substance abuse, in order to have a, a sense of happiness, a sense of wholeness and fulfillment in their lives. As a group, they expressed hope that one day in the future, they would have that sense of fulfillment that they craved. But as you looked at their body language and their facial expressions, you could already see that uh, maybe the seeds of cynicism and doubt had been fully planted and were beginning to bloom. Um, This desire for a full and a meaningful life is not a new desire. It is a universal desire that has been in place since the creation of man. We're created with this need in our lives. And if you look at history, the the great philosophers, for example, of, of Greece and Rome, they actively sought answers to that need, how do we have a full life? What gives us meaning and fullness in life? And as you progress from them all the way through the the philosophers of the Middle Ages and modern times, if you look at the great religions of the world, all of them in one way or another are speaking to this need that we have for fulfillment and meaning in our life. It's a need, frankly, that is the source of the issue that prompted Paul to write to the Colossian church as they were being challenged by outsiders and even some inside their church on how to meet this need for fulfillment and meaning. So this morning, we start a new series of messages that's going to take us all the way through the month of May. It's a series of messages based out of the book of Colossians, a series entitled Christ Preeminent. We're going to be here in this book, plumbing its depths, working our way through the four chapters, thinking around 13 or 14 messages, seeing what it has to say for us today. This morning, it's kind of the introduction to the books, the introduction to the series. And so this morning, we're going to start by first examining Paul's greeting, and then we will see the, the major portion of the passage Paul's gratitude of, towards the Colossian church. In the first two verses, you have a standard greeting kind of from Paul to most of the churches that he would write to. And in that standard greeting, you will find that Paul is very intentional and he's very revealing. He's intentional in that in the subsequent verses of this passage, they are going to be there's carefully crafted words and phrases that are meant to establish rapport and common ground with the Colossians. A group of people Paul has never met. Paul did not plant this church. He didn't start it. He's not met them. And so he's writing them. Of course, they know who he is, but he begins this letter in a way to immediately kind of just establish credibility and rapport and common ground with them. And this opening is revealing in that it tells us important information about Paul, about the Colossian church. Let's start with Paul and Timothy in verse 1. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul is an apostle. Now, in the New Testament, that word apostle can be what we would call a small letter A apostle. It's just a generic word for messenger. And certainly, Paul was a messenger, but he's more. There's also what we would refer to as a a capital letter A apostle, the title apostle. And this is who Paul is. Um, He is... This context is more formal. He is one who is sent as a commissioned ambassador for Christ. He has been authorized. He's an official, authorized spokesman who has been empowered by Christ with special abilities and gifts to represent Jesus and his kingdom. This is one of several offices that you will find in the New Testament church. To the Ephesians, Uh, a letter that he wrote at the same time as Colossians, and these letters were delivered all together. To the Ephesians, he writes in chapter 4, verse 11, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Now the office of apostle, prophet, These offices died out with the first generation of believers due to the the special requirements that had to have been met to be considered an apostle or a prophet. Between those special requirements and the the finishing of the Scriptures, we do not have large-letter apostles and capital letter P prophets today. With the closing of Scripture, with the, with the passing of the first generation, those offices are no longer in existence. So, church, when you see someone representing themselves as Apostle John Smith of the apostolic church of whatever, you should say to in your mind, either the person just doesn't know his scriptures or it's a charlatan, one of the two, because we don't have apostles like Paul and Peter today. It's important to realize that, okay? But we do have evangelist, pastors, and teachers. Evangelist might be our uh, word that would be kind of uh, synonymous with our idea of a missionary. Uh, Pastor teachers, that's people like myself uh, who are shepherds of the church and called to pastoral ministry. And so we have those in place. Paul, as an apostle, is accompanied by Timothy, our brother. It's very possible that the Colossians knew Timothy as Uh, He, along with Epaphras, who's referred to in verses 7 and 8, were actually the ones who brought the gospel to Colossae and helped plant this church. Timothy is with Paul. Paul is in Rome. He's in prison. The date is around 60, 61 AD. This is the time that we studied a while back when we went through the book of Acts and we got to Acts chapter 28. We finished that series. We finished with Paul being under house arrest this is the time when this book was written. With Paul in uh, Rome as Timothy, Luke, Demas, Tychicus, a bunch of other guys, and another one by the name of Onesimus. Paul sends this letter along with Ephesians, a letter to the church at Laodicea, maybe some other letters. He sends them by courier. Tychicus was a man who would often be with Paul, ministering with Paul, but then would carry letters to the various churches through the ministry of Paul. In this case, Tychicus and Onesimus bring this letter to the Colossian church to them. Tychicus is from the area. Onesimus has a more interesting backstory. He was an escaped slave. He belonged to a man by the name of Philemon, who is a member of the Colossian church, and he escapes. And so Onesimus meets Paul by God's providence in Rome when they're both imprisoned and Paul leads Onesimus to Christ and then he disciples him. and as part of his discipleship when Onesimus is set free from prison Paul sends him back to Philemon and says you need to make things right with Philemon because you broke the law you did what was contrary And you need to settle up with Philemon. And so if you read the letter of Philemon in the Bible, this is the letter from Paul at the same time about Onesimus, who's bringing this letter to the Colossian church. And he's encouraging Philemon to be kind and generous towards Onesimus, who is now more important than an ex-slave. He is a brother in Christ. And so now their relationship has changed. And so this is kind of the background of what's going on here with these men. What about the Colossian church itself? What do we know about that? Well, in the picture behind uh, well okay, so we don't have that, but uh, there's a map, there's a map that i I can show it to you next week uh, and it's of Asia Minor, okay Asia Minor. if you can imagine in your mind a Mediterranean Sea, you know here's the Mediterranean Sea, and Israel's on this side and you know, right up above is Asia Minor. I'm, I'm really testing your, your academic skills this morning, okay? And on the, on the western edge of Asia Minor is the city of Ephesus, where Paul ministered during his second missionary journey. He starts the church there. He plants it. He stays for three years. Again, we looked at that in the book of Acts when we went through it. Ministry just explodes. The gospel just, I mean, it was just probably the most effective time of Paul's ministry when it comes to church planting. And from that church, the gospel spreads throughout Asia Minor. One of the men that Paul leads to Christ in that three-year period is a guy by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras is from Colossae. Timothy is also from that same general region. And so Epaphras, and it's believed Timothy, they take the gospel back to Colossae, and Epaphras stays there, and he begins to evangelize and disciple, and a healthy church is planted. Colossae is an important city. It's on a major highway that connected Greece and Rome with Persia and the Far East, uh, the city had been around for more than 500 years. It was a large city. It was a very wealthy city. They exported a, a certain kind of wool that was highly desired and very expensive. will give you an example. This letter was written in 6061 AD. A few years after, about in 65, 66, a major earthquake comes and strikes the area like we just saw in the news because that region is, is prone to horrible earthquakes. The city of Colossae is wiped out. It's just destroyed. And so when Rome offers the citizens the money to help rebuild their city, they said, no, no, thank you, we got it, (laughs) and they did. And they rebuilt their city in a a magnificent way. So this city is an important city. Major road goes through there. Um, Back a a couple hundred years earlier, Antiochus III, the the ruler of the Seleucid dynasty, he transplants between 10 and 20,000 Jews from Palestine To this very area between Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. And so you have a a heavy Jewish influence in this city. And if you know anything about Paul and and the people who did ministry with him, what did they look for? They looked for cities where there was a Jewish presence because they would go into the synagogue and they would preach the gospel and they would see Jews come to Christ first. And then that would be the beginning of a church and then it would spread to Gentiles. So this this city is is a prime candidate for that approached the ministry. And as we'll see, this church, and we'll see this over the next several weeks, this church was dealing with challenges to the gospel that centered around the sufficiency of Christ. And it was coming from different areas, but it was all attacking this idea of fullness, meaningful, full, whole, complete life, as if Jesus can't provide that, and something else is needed. Now most importantly about this church, from this text you see that it was filled with genuine believers that were growing in their faith and they were experiencing a true relationship with God through Christ he writes to the saints and faithful brothers let's pause right there for a moment uh you know i always think of when the saints come marching in you know that kind of thing um uh, you and i are referred to in the scriptures as saints holy ones Uh, The idea is, of course, that our character will begin to more and more reflect that of our Heavenly Father. It also speaks to the fact that God has decided to consecrate us. We have been set apart by God, dedicated to Him for His work and for His worship. And certainly this is the character of the Colossians. And they are not only saints, they are faithful saints, faithful brothers. In other words... The commitment of their life matched this calling that they had from God. They were heavenly-minded, but withstanding the, the, the pressures and the temptations of the surrounding culture, they were in Christ, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Church, they may have lived at Colossae. They may have been called Colossians but make no mistake about it, their identity was in Christ and their true citizenship is now in his eternal kingdom. And this is something for all of us to be reminded of, especially in the age in which we live when we are so encouraged to pick up and adopt various forms of an identity that is contrary or is an addition to, the pro- to who we actually are, Christ. Christian, since we're in Christ, our life, is now defined by that relationship. This allegiance to Jesus now defines who we are. This new sphere of existence and the inseparable bond that we have with God the Father through Jesus Christ gives us our identity, tells us who we are. And so Paul says to these saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace From God, our Father. And that final phrase, Paul's, that that phrase is loaded with Pauline words that he actually uses with every letter that he writes to a church in the New Testament. This idea, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. This phrase, this concept becomes rampant within the early church. As an example of that, um. I would point you to the catacombs in Rome. The catacombs are one of those places that I, I, I intend, I hope one day, to be able to take Catherine to. I want her to be able to see the catacombs. Um, don't ever say I'm not romantic. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh, do, you know what, do you know what I mean by the catacombs? The catac- in Rome, uh, the church was being persecuted. As the church got persecuted, the church literally went underground. Uh, the soil and the rock... Uh, configurations under Rome are conducive to tunneling. And so the Christians went underground and and ultimately over time, over about a 150-year period of time, they dug hundreds of miles of tunnels and caverns and things like this. And not only did they live there, they were buried there. You see, the the Romans, they cremated their dead. The Christians buried their dead. And so if you go down these tunnels, what you'll see is along the walls are carved out like bunk beds. There's crevices that are carved out into the rock. And this is where the Christians would place their loved one. And then just as we do with a headstone at a cemetery, and we'll put their name and something else on there, maybe a phrase like, you know, he was all right as a husband, but he was a better day or whatever. Uh, you know, we put, we put different things on there. They did the same. They made inscriptions in the rock, and maybe it was the name of the, of the person. And some of them were really heart-rending, as you can see, okay, it was their, it was their child. It was their teenager and, and things like that. But what you'll find is that in most of the inscriptions, in one way or another, they, they, they refer to the fact that their loved one is in Christ and he's in peace. They are now living in peace. That idea of being in Christ, in peace, becomes pervasive and defines the Christian experience. For everyone here who needs peace this morning, maybe you're seeking fulfillment in your life. Paul's greeting is an invitation for you to call out to God and ask for his peace. The peace that can we can only experience when we first reject ourselves and our own efforts at pleasing God and gaining his favor and instead trusting in Christ alone, committing our lives to him, turning from self and embracing Christ, this is how we come to know peace once we are in Christ. The more we experience life in Christ, the more we will experience God's grace and peace. So first there's the greeting, but the main portion of this passage is speaking to Paul's gratitude. Paul's gratitude is expressed as a prayer for the Colossians and this gratitude that he has is fueled by the understanding that the gospel and all of its power is now being revealed in their lives. Church, when the gospel takes root in our lives, we are changed by it. We cannot stay the same that we are or the way we were. And there are several things in these final verses that that indicate and that we should note about the gospel and the power of the gospel in our lives. First. The gospel changes how we relate to God. In verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. All of those philosophies that speak about the meaning and fulfillment of life, the world's religions that are encouraging us to live in a certain way so that we can have peace and joy and fulfillment and meaning, One thing that all of those systems of belief have in common is that they are based fundamentally on a sense of self-work, self-reliance, self-righteousness. We work, we do good things, we improve ourselves, we live in a certain way so that we earn the favor of God and the fullness that we're speaking to. Christianity is different. And Paul points this out from the beginning, that we do not relate to God through works. He tells the Ephesians, the letter that accompanied this one, for by grace are we saved through what? Faith. Faith. And the faith that we relate to him is not even of ourselves. That very faith isn't something that we are good enough to generate. It is the gift of God, not of works. You see, salvation, a relationship with God, from beginning to end, is based upon God's grace. The gospel teaches us to reject self-reliance and personal merit as the basis for our relationship with God. This is true at the point of salvation, but church, this is true in how we continue to relate to God after we have trusted in Christ. The gospel teaches us we do not relate to God through our own personal work, We relate to God through the work of Jesus Christ that we're trusting in. And how good is that news? It's fantastic. Because at the end of the day, none of us measure up. None of us are good enough to relate to God on our own. Only Jesus is. Faith in Christ Jesus means that we reject self and we entrust ourselves completely To our Savior and rely upon Him for every spiritual blessing that is ours from our Heavenly Father. Secondly, the gospel not only changes how we relate to God, it changes how we relate to others. The second half of verse four, he says, I thank God when I pray for you, having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. What does James say? Faith without works is dead faith without works is a dead faith and what is the primary work of faith in our lives love i think of that hymn that uh, came out i think uh, maybe in the 60s and we we sang it a lot in the 60s 70s and 80s you know uh, by our uh, they will know us by our love and, and how true is that This is what Scripture teaches us. The primary way that we know our faith is grounded in Jesus is whether or not we love others, especially other believers, regardless of where they come from, what they look like, how they smell, whatever, regardless of their ethnicity, their station in life. None of that matters. Believers love one another because the Spirit of God dwells within us. Paul tells the Galatians, For in Christ Jesus, neither Jew or Gentile counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The gospel and the power of the gospel changes how we interact with God, it changes how we interact with one another. This is why. We, we so strongly encourage living in biblical community with one another because this is the best environment for us to express our love for other believers. Doing life with one another like this is the perfect opportunity to express our faith and the power of the gospel. Thirdly, the gospel changes the entire perspective and foundation of our life. Verse 5 says, Uh, I'm I'm thanking God because of your faith and how you love one another because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul tells us something important here, the first portion of verse 5. A growing faith in Jesus and love for his people flows out of the certain hope we have of a glorious future. Faith and love are the key characteristics of a true believer, but it is the hope contained in the truth of the gospel that enables us to remain firm in the faith and to grow and to love those that we might not naturally love. The hope the gospel gives us in Christ becomes the bedrock of our soul upon which we build our lives. It's this bedrock that we build our lives upon, that is now strong enough that, to establish us so that we don't collapse under the trials, the tribulations, and the, the difficulties of life. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 6, verse 19, writes, This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He's become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, what he says here is that the the growing faith of the Colossians and the love that they were expressing out of one, one another is the fruit of this bedrock truth that they were experiencing. Life in Christ, our high priest who has ascended and gone before us. He has opened up the doors of heaven so that any of us, at any time we want, can have a relationship with our heavenly Father. We can call out to him. We can pray to him. We can express our thanks and our gratitude. It can become a real, vibrant, life-giving relationship. And all of that comes out of this hope of the gospel that Jesus has given us because he is the ascended Lord. He is the one who we are trusting with our souls. This hope tells us that one day we are going to be changed forever when Christ returns. Therefore, this hope actually is what fuels us to live in a way that ref- honors Christ and reflects that, that character called sainthood, holiness. The Apostle John writes in First John chapter 3. Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, we we don't pursue holiness and purity in order to get God's favor. We pursue holiness and purity and Christ-likeness because we have been given everything by God through Jesus Christ, and our life is established in Him. And we have this eternal hope. And this hope here isn't like, I hope the air conditioner will kick in at some point. Okay? It's not that kind of hope. A hope that we are definitely going to be disappointed in by the time I give the benediction. No. This is a certain, sure expectation. This is something that is going to happen because it is based upon the unmovable rock, Jesus Christ. And because we have that hope, God is saying, you can pursue holiness. And and why does that matter? Because when we fail, which we fail often, we then don't have to be afraid of rejection. Have Have you ever had something in your life that, you wanted to do, maybe, but you kind of had a suspicion that I'm going to fall flat on my face. And that fear of failure is greater than your desire. And so you never actually step out and try. You ever had something like that in your life? I know I did. For the longest time, it was singing. you know, And it took me years and years to get over that fear of singing. And I won't demonstrate why I had that fear, right? Um, But, you know, if you think about it, most of us in here, no offense, you've lived long enough, as I have, that you know what life is like and the struggles of life. And you know how often we fail in trying to be like Christ. And how strong the presence of sin can be in our lives. Think about it. If we did not have this sure and certain hope as the bedrock of our life, we would be too afraid to step out and try to live for God because we would say, what's the use? We're going to fail. But this hope says it doesn't matter if you fail because Jesus has already succeeded. Isn't that great? Jesus has already succeeded in our place so that we don't have to be afraid to come back to God at those times when we fail and say, Lord, I, I failed. Help me. Forgive me. Give me your grace. And we can do it over and over and over again because we are anchored in the rock that doesn't move. This is the hope of the gospel. This is why the gospel is good news. The gospel understands we aren't good enough to relate to God. But in Jesus we are, and we always will be. So there's this encouragement here. Finally, the gospel is powerful. Powerful. Because it's the truth of God from God that the entire world needs to hear from those of us who are God's people. In the closing of this passage, he says, Of this you've heard before, in the word of the truth, the gospel. The word of the truth, the gospel. The gospel is good news because it's true. It's the truth of God which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. If ever there was a passage that should encourage all of us, to engage with the mission of our church, to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. This passage explains why. The gospel is powerful, and God uses people to bring the truth of the gospel to other people. And when that happens, something miraculous occurs. Lives are changed. Destinies are changed. People come into the kingdom of God. Churches are started Cities are changed because of the power of the gospel. So we look at a passage like this, and we have to ask, so what? We aren't the Colossian church. We aren't the Colossian church. We're covenant church but we have so many of the same conditions in place. This is why this letter is so applicable to us. Seeker, it's applicable to you. Those of you who are seeking fulfillment and you're looking for answers, this passage is telling you that today can be the day where you find the source of fulfillment in Jesus Christ if you'll turn to him in repentance and faith and you'll stop, you'll reject self-reliance, you can find that fulfillment, that wholeness, that completion that you're looking for. I want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, stop by our care area in the back of the room. We have people who can talk to you. Christian, when you think about this passage and this idea of this secure hope that our lives are to be grounded on, it does raise an important question and application. Are you trusting in the eternal hope of the gospel or are you trusting in the false hopes that our culture bombards us with? I think for most of us, knowing you as well as I do, I think most of you would, could say, yes, I'm hoping in Jesus. It's not that we aren't hoping in Jesus. The issue arises as is when we are hoping in Jesus plus something else that's being joined to Jesus, which is exactly the issue in the Colossian church that we'll see. It's people who are saying, yes, Jesus is great, and blah, 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 and they tack something on to Jesus. It's called syncretism, and we are bombarded by it in our culture, and unfortunately, we're bombarded by it and encouraged towards it even within the influencers of evangelical church world. And this passage calls us back to remember that the gospel, the rock, our hope, is not Jesus plus something. Jesus plus something equals nothing. There's no hope there. The only hope is in Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I hoping in something other than Jesus or in addition to Jesus? And understand that answer can often appear to be very good things. Good things that... And, Kept in their proper place are gifts from God. But the heart of idolatry and false hope is to elevate God's gifts to a place of supremacy. It's an important question, Christian. Finally, as a church, one of the things I was struck about in this passage is that Paul says, I heard about you. In other words, the reputation of this church spread all the way to Rome where Paul hears about what's happening and he is encouraged and strengthened and thankful. And so church, I would just close with one simple question by way of application. When people hear the words covenant church, what do you hope our reputation will be? Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've given us in Christ the bedrock of our salvation, the bedrock of our hope, the bedrock of our very lives. We ask for the grace that we need to live as saints who are in Christ. Though we live in Palm Bay or Melbourne or the beaches, we live there, but our citizenship is in your kingdom. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to learn how to navigate these two worlds that we actually inhabit One is our eternal, real destiny. One is where you have us planted to do ministry, to worship and work and glorify you. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to be vibrant and to grow, that our reputation to those outside of these walls will be as encouraging as the reputation of the Colossian church, a reputation that was justified because they, Lord Jesus, had a life that was grounded in you. May we be grounded in you, Lord Jesus, this week. Amen.